The PBS NewsHour podcast is supported in part by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. What if we could block a protein to stop runaway cell division? Dana-Farber Cancer Institute laid the foundation for CDK4-6 inhibitors, drugs designed to treat many advanced breast cancers. Learn more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. Major funding for this podcast has been provided by Public Welfare Foundation and the Pulitzer Center. Hey, y'all, this is episode five of a five-part series. If you didn't start from the beginning, trust me, it's going to make a lot more sense if you stop right here and go back to episode one. May I have your attention, please? May I have your attention, please? It's a Friday morning in June at the Public Defender's Office in St. Louis, Missouri. The fire alarm is blaring, but nobody's moving. Everyone's just quietly going about their business. Someone shuts the door so they don't have to hear it. The alarm is going off because below this office, someone in the county jail has pulled it. It happens a lot. And the public defenders have gotten used to it. I mean, if there is actually a real emergency, sometimes the St. Louis County Police will actually walk through the building and clear the building. That's Stephen Reynolds. He's the head public defender in this office. Do you see this at all as a metaphor for your, your office? I know where you're going, but no. <laughs> I think they're two separate issues. But I mean, you kind of have alarms going off constantly and you just kind of ignore them. I wouldn't say that we ignore the issues in our office. I would say we're put in a position of triaging, which we're not supposed to do. There's been a fire reported in the building. I'm literally just cold calling in the courtroom, like, John, Bob, anybody? Hi, I'm your lawyer. The lady at the grocery store knows me probably better. I basically have about five judges who are looking for me because they've got defendants who are in their courtrooms and they want to get these cases resolved, but I can only be in one place at one time. There's just not enough time in the day to do everything that needs to get done. We've looked at how triage can play out for clients, like it did for Ricky Kidd. I wasn't able to fully develop into my potential as a man. I was 21 years old when I was incarcerated. I'm about to be 45 now. The many things that I could have done with my life, those things have been taken away from me. We've looked at how difficult it's been for public defenders to try to change this system. This is a disease. And it's gone on for 50 years. But what if the problems with public defense are a symptom of a larger problem, the problem of mass incarceration? We don't do a very good job in America of separating the people we're mad at from the people we're afraid of. And so for that reason, 50% of Missouri's prison population is made up of people who are convicted of a nonviolent offense. And what if addressing the problems of public defense means also addressing the larger problems of the criminal justice system? The two options are, you can give us more lawyers, we can make the system bigger, and that's called the supply side solution. And then there's a demand side solution, and that means stop prosecuting all this low-level stuff that's really mental illness and addiction. In this episode, the last in our series, 
we're going to look at the way prosecutors charge crimes and how one county prosecutor, Wesley Bell, is trying to make a difference from his side of the courtroom and how that might help public defenders, too. If you have a prosecutor that's reasonable, you tend to get reasonable outcomes. And we'll return to the case of Ricky Kidd, who finally got a new day in court after 23 years behind bars. People was looking for the movie moment where the judge says, Mr. Kidd, rise. He announces that you're free to go. It just wasn't a movie moment. And often they're not movie moments. Do they have a nickname for public defenders? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they call them uh, public pretenders. These are my docket cases. I have 119 open cases. 131 open cases. Hey, here's your 200 cases. You have court in 20 minutes. It's across the street. Go. I feel the stress of 150 souls on my back. And you know that some of them are slipping through the cracks. Hello, this is a free call from... Ricky. I 100% believe that I'm in prison today because of the Missouri Public Defender System. This is Broken Justice, a show from the PBS NewsHour about the public defender system in Missouri and what it tells us about justice in America. I'm Amna Nawaz. And I'm Frank Carlson. For more than 40 years, the PBS NewsHour has provided solid, reliable reporting that has made it one of the most trusted news programs on television. From news headlines to analysis, millions of people rely on the context, independence, and balance the NewsHour offers. Watch, read, follow the NewsHour on broadcast and online every night. So, Frank, Wesley Bell, he's the St. Louis County prosecutor. He's become sort of an unlikely player on this issue of public defender caseloads. How did that happen? Well, to understand that, it helps to know a little bit about his background. He actually started out as a public defender in St. Louis County, then became a municipal judge, then a prosecutor. And then following the protests in Ferguson in 2014, he ran for city council and he won. I would like to introduce your next city councilman for Ward 3 in Ferguson, Wesley Bell! And he helped negotiate reform in the Ferguson City Police Department and courts. But Wesley knew the place where he could make the most change was in the county prosecutor's office. We've been talking this whole series about public defenders and their caseloads, but prosecutors play a huge role in determining how many cases public defenders have to take on. After all, it's the prosecutor who decides whether to bring charges against a defendant in the first place, what those charges should be, whether to offer a plea deal or an alternative to jail time. Bell wanted to reform the system, and to do that, he needed to set the priorities. And so late last year... My name is Wesley Bell. I'm running for St. Louis County Prosecutor for a Safer St. Louis. He ran to become head of the county prosecutor's office, and he won that race. 67-year-old Bob McCullough is defeated in yesterday's primary by Ferguson Councilman, 43-year-old Wesley Bell. He officially took over in January, and so we went to see him about six months after he'd been in office to see how things were going. Oh, so we're not on camera? We are not on camera. Okay, good. I didn't shave. (laughs) Wesley explained how he was trying to change the way St. Louis County deals with crime from the prosecutor side of the equation. If you have a prosecutor that's reasonable, you tend to get reasonable outcomes. So reasonable outcomes, what does that even mean? 
Well, it means a whole host of things. For example, this year he stopped prosecuting marijuana possession for people carrying less than 100 grams. He stopped seeking jail time for child support violations. Another reasonable outcome, he said his office would expand alternatives to prosecution through drug court and mental health court. And he's no longer looking to set bail for nonviolent offenders. And that means more people can go home instead of waiting in jail to deal with their charges. When we look at the reduction in the jail population with nonviolent offenders, when we look at not prosecuting low levels of marijuana, which I think is a waste of resources, I think that that is born out of that perspective and understanding that, look, we have limited resources. We'd rather reallocate and focus our resources on the serious and violent offenders. So, in other words, prioritize who you prosecute. Well, yeah, prioritize to focus on violent offenders. And so we wanted to find out, how do Wesley's reforms affect public defenders? So here's one example. Since Wesley became county prosecutor, his office is now treating failure to pay child support as a civil issue, not a criminal one. And that means jail time is largely off the table. And if a client isn't facing jail time, they're not entitled to a lawyer. So that means fewer cases for public defenders. We were dealing with hundreds of child support cases And those cases also don't ever have a quick resolve because the whole point is you need money. Public defender clients don't have money. So you ride the docket for a year or sometimes more than that. And that's 12. Beverly Haber has been a public defender in the St. Louis office for four years. And she says this has made a huge difference. She also says what the prosecutor's office has done to expand drug and mental health courts is really important too. So those things have absolutely refocused our caseload. Some of the minor possession charges, um, even property damage, things like that. The prosecutor's office is kind of getting ahead of that. And before it even gets to us, sometimes they're offering people diversion programs or instead of issuing it as a felony, maybe it's being issued as a misdemeanor. All of those things impact our abilities to use our resources. Okay, so that sounds like they're able to address some of those issues early, clear these cases earlier too. Wesley also mentioned this issue of plea deals. Yeah. Plea deals are how the vast majority of these cases get resolved in this system. Not through a trial, but through a deal with the prosecutor. And so how it works is that a prosecutor might charge someone with drug trafficking, but then say, look, I'll knock this down and recommend the minimum sentence if you plead guilty today. And since many public defender clients can't afford bail, and they're told it'll be months before their public defenders can get to their cases, they often take those deals rather than sit in jail. Wesley Bell says that kind of overcharging to force a plea will not happen in his office. You find the fair charge, and if you have to try the case, then go try the case. We're not going to force individuals to plea. I don't think that that's just, and I don't think it's ethical. As of September, nine months after Wesley started pushing these kinds of reforms, his office said the jail population in St. Louis County was down 15%. How well is the system working today? Right at this point, I think the system is working a lot better. And I think there's some uh, tangible things that we can look at. So in theory, Wesley's changes seem to mean fewer people need a public defender in the first place. Exactly. And public defenders say that's great because it allows them to focus on the cases that really need the most work, the really serious ones. But the problem is that those really serious cases, they need a lot of work. And so public defenders in St. Louis County say even with Wesley Bell's reforms, it's still not enough. They still have too many cases. 
So without an investigator, without more attorneys, it's not going to make a big change if we don't have more bodies touching each one of these files and being there to advocate for a client. But there are other things changing in St. Louis County outside of the prosecutor's office. This summer, the circuit court judges in that county passed a new rule, and it allows them to appoint private lawyers to take on some of the public defender's cases when they're overloaded. And to determine who's overloaded, they're using Steve Hanlon's numbers, our data guy from the last episode. The presiding judge in St. Louis County is also considering creating a wait list for clients. Okay, so all of that seems like progress. They're finally getting some traction with the judges. But a wait list? How would that work? Yeah, this is something that's currently happening in about half of the state's public defender offices. Basically, the offices use Steve Hanlon's numbers to set limits on how many cases their public defenders can handle at any one time. And when public defenders hit those limits, new defendants, whether they're out on bond or sitting in jail, can be added to a wait list. So that means the public defenders stay at or near their limits. Well, wait, that sounds a lot like the same problem they had before, with people just stuck in jail waiting for a lawyer. Yeah, I mean, you're right. There was essentially a wait list before. But at least this way, the offices can prioritize the people in jail, and so it's a bit more orderly. But it doesn't do much for those clients on the wait list. They're still stuck in limbo, waiting for a lawyer. So what do we know about the wait list? How many clients are actually on them right now waiting? Well, as of mid-November across the state, there were about 5,800 clients on wait lists. That's not a small number. No, it's not. And Michael Barrett, who just recently resigned as the head of Missouri's public defender system, told us he knows that and that he doesn't like forcing clients to wait. The, the clients are absolutely getting the brunt of this. But he says until the state puts up more money, that's the way it has to be. We're like any other state department. If the Department of Transportation says we need $500 million to resurface all the roads and, br- and fix all the bridges, and they're only provided $250 million, well, they're not going to resurface all the roads and fix all the bridges. They're going to do half of them. And we're no different. Okay, so Missouri's public defenders are still trying to put their foot down, but did you just say that Michael Barrett resigned? Yeah, he says after years of essentially doing everything short of setting himself on fire to raise attention for these issues, he's done. He's gone back to New York, where he's originally from, to raise his family. You know, it was described to me by my predecessor that it's like pushing a large boulder up a hill where you can't see the top of the hill. You just have to push for a long, as long as you can and, uh, and then turn it over to the next person in line behind you. So whatever happens in Missouri, I guess, will be up to someone else, whoever replaces Michael Barrett. Yeah, it's going to be someone else's problem. Okay, but that whole caseload funding issue he was trying to fix, it's not just a problem in Missouri. It's a problem in a bunch of other places. So what's happening there? So beyond Missouri, Steve Hanlon is working to keep up the pressure on these systems by doing caseload studies in other states to give those states the same data that Michael Barrett's had to press these issues. Sun Tzu, the art of war, every battle is won before it's ever begun. It's won by the choice of terrain. And that's where we are. We're in a battle. The American Civil Liberties Union is also in that battle, continuing to sue states and local governments across the country, including in Missouri. And in Missouri, the ACLU has adopted Steve Hanlon's numbers in its lawsuit against the state public defender system. The two parties are attempting to settle, and if that settlement's approved by a judge, it would mean major changes for this system, and perhaps a way forward for other systems. But Jason Williamson, the lawyer at the ACLU working on these cases, he says ultimately this legal strategy is only going to take them so far. While I would love to be able to do this in one fell swoop or certainly in a more efficient way than 
you know, going state by state or county by county and suing people, we'll do whatever we need to do. There is certainly a much bigger role that the federal government could play in, in moving this ball forward. And we've already seen this getting some attention in the early days of the 2020 race. Sentencing reform, cash bail reform, investing in public defenders, diversion programs. We have a criminal justice system that treats you better if you're rich and guilty than if you're poor and innocent. Several Democratic candidates have plans to provide more funding for public defense as part of a broader pledge to criminal justice reform. Today in America, 20% of the people in jail, unbelievably, are in jail for the crime of being poor. And it's not just Democrats. This summer, ALEC, the influential conservative lobbying group, announced its own support to better fund public defense. And for years, conservative billionaire Charles Koch has been donating money to improve public defense across the country. Okay, so that's all good going forward, but what about all the people who've already gone through the system, right? The people who think their public defenders failed them, that they're the reason they're in jail serving long sentences. Like, none of this does much to help people like Ricky Kidd, right? Well, there are many places, like St. Louis, for example, where prosecutors are now reviewing claims of wrongful conviction, and in some cases overturning those convictions. That didn't work for Ricky. But this year, after many crushing setbacks, Ricky did finally get a new day in court. I'm aware of the percentage of cases that are won and lost, but I always just, I have to wake up every day believing that this is it. More on that after the break. The sixth Democratic debate in the run-up to the 2020 presidential election will be held on December 19th in Los Angeles. Continuing its long tradition of providing a broad range of political coverage to the American public, the NewsHour, along with Politico, will host the debate. Watch on broadcast and online, Thursday, December 19th. When we last heard about Ricky Kidd, this is what we knew. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for a double murder that he says he didn't commit. He had an alibi for the day of the murders. He even said he knew who committed them. He told all of this to his public defender, and he still got convicted. And then in 2009, Ricky's legal team got him another hearing to lay out all the stuff his public defender missed in her investigation and at his trial. But that judge, he ruled that he couldn't consider most of that new evidence. And that's because of a federal circuit court rule that prevents judges from considering information if it was available to the lawyers in the original trial. Ricky lost. And they spit back in my face, you had lawyers. I had your failed public defender system lawyers, though. Oh, yeah, well, oh, well. Here's Sean O'Brien, Ricky's current lawyer. I have never been more discouraged by an order. At that point, I knew it was going to be uphill, uphill, uphill. But Ricky's team kept working, and eventually a state judge agreed to hear a new appeal in Ricky's case this year. And this time, 22 years after Ricky's first trial, the judge could consider all the evidence, even the stuff that was rejected a decade earlier. Looks like coming up to downtown Gallatin and the courthouse. In April, I went to Gallatin, Missouri for that hearing. And for four days, Ricky's lawyers threw everything they had in front of the court to prove that Ricky was wrongfully convicted and that he deserved a new trial. Just because you 
Case number 18DK-CC00017, Ricky Kidd versus Ron Cash. What you're hearing is the actual courtroom audio. Thank you, Your Honor. Cynthia Dodge, on behalf of the petitioner. I'm also here with co-counsel Sean O'Brien, as well as Ricky Kidd, who appears in person. Thank you. The judge heard from Ricky's former girlfriend, his primary alibi witness. Please introduce yourself to the court. Monica Gray. And Ms. Gray, uh... And she again confirmed Ricky's story about the day of the murders. The judge also heard testimony from Ricky's co-defendant. He wouldn't come to court again, so an actor read from the transcript from the 2009 hearing. And in fact, did you see Ricky Kidd at any time on February 6, 1996? No, sir. He was not involved in this at all, was he? No, sir. You don't even know where Ricky Kidd was that day? No, sir. So they had a lot of this evidence back at the last hearing in 2009, right? Was there anything else? Yeah, there was some new evidence, too. The judge heard from the state's star eyewitness from the original trial, the neighbor. Petitioner calls Mr. Richard Harris. Mr. Harris, would you step forward, please? Now, he was the one who said that he was 2,001% sure that Ricky Kidd killed one of the victims, right? Exactly. All right, let me ask you this. When you testified under oath at trial that you were 2,001% sure of your in-court identification, are you telling the truth? I made a mistake, man. Say again, but I made a mistake, plain and simple, man. That man did not do that. That's not what I'm asking you. I'm I, asking hear what you I hear what you're asking me, but I'm telling you, that man is innocent. I'm sorry for my language. Whoa, wasn't that the only direct evidence that they had in court that actually put Ricky at the scene? Yeah, so that was huge. And from the stand, that neighbor apologized to Ricky, who was sitting right in the courtroom listening. I do want to apologize to you, man. Seriously. So the state's key eyewitness recanted. But there was something else. Ricky's lawyers found evidence that the original prosecutor from his trial had withheld information. Information that pointed to the three other suspects Ricky always said committed these murders. And so one of the key questions at this new hearing was, did the fact that the prosecutor withheld this information from Ricky's lawyer amount to an unfair trial? Uh, Would you uh, introduce yourself to the court, please? Yes, uh, my name is Tracy Anderson, and I am an attorney. And I previously represented Ricky Kidd some 22 years ago, I think. Teresa Anderson, Ricky's public defender from the first trial, was the last person to take the stand. And she told the court that she'd always believed in Ricky's innocence. And she even broke down when she was asked how she could have used this information. It's frustrating because there's so much that I didn't know that I should have known. And I don't, and I, I don't think it was something I could have known all by myself. I don't think it's something Ricky could have known all by himself. You know, this was stuff that should have been turned over to me. If I had that information, you know, I may, I may have been able to do a better job. And that's frustrating. Yeah. And when you talk about information, there is a lot to unpack there. And the thing is, it's all stuff that should have pointed to Ricky's innocence. I mean, you think he'd be exonerated right then and there. Yeah, I mean, during the four days of this hearing, Ricky's family and friends were all gathered in this old courthouse in Gallatin. His mom, his big sister, his kids, even his granddaughter was there. And many of them thought that at the end of the week, the judge would just have to let Ricky go. But that's not what happened. On the last day of testimony, the judge said he had a lot of reading to do before he could make his decision, and the court adjourned. 
Ricky was approached by two guards who led him out of the courtroom, down the stairs, and out the back of the courthouse, where a van was waiting to take him back to prison. I thought today would be the day that justice would prevail. I caught up with Ricky's mother outside the courthouse. It's just, just too much. How much can a mother bear, you know? Here's Ricky's big sister. And I know he feels devastated and feels like, you know, but he's so strong, so I'm going to be strong, and I know that he, he's coming home. People was looking for the movie moment. That's Ricky speaking to me from prison the week after the hearing. The movie moment where your case is presented, um, where the judge says, Mr. Kid, rise. He announces that you're, you know, after hearing X, Y, and Z, that you're free to go. Um, it just wasn't a movie moment, and often they're not movie moments. At this point, Sean O'Brien, Ricky's pro bono lawyer, said all they could do was wait. Weeks passed, then months. I, I compare it to a boxing match that the, the person who wins the match is hardly ever free of bruises at the end of the day. <laughs> and so, uh, but that's what you have to do is to kind of let it all hang out so that the decision maker uh, feels, I've heard everything there is to know. Um, and on balance and looking at it all, they have the wrong guy. And then finally, in August. Sean O'Brien. Sean, it's Frank. How are you doing? I'm good. Good. What are you, where are you? Sean had just gotten an email from the judge. Ricky had won. It's really exciting, and I've, I've been on running on adrenaline since I opened up that email this morning. <laughs> just, you know, so rewarding to, you're literally giving somebody his life back. We were all dying to talk to Ricky, but we couldn't get a hold of him. Then the next day, producer Vika Aronson and I were on the phone with his big sister, Nikki. Hi, Vika, how are you? Good, good, how are you? And seconds into our call, she said Ricky was calling her. Oh, hold on, Ricky's calling. She patched us through to Ricky and Ricky told us how his lawyers had called him at the prison to give him the news. And I said, guys, what, what, what's up? What, what's going on? I'm my nerves. I'm on edge. And they was like, you know what's going on. Uh, and I said, well, uh, maybe I do, but tell me. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and uh, uh, Cindy said, Ricky, you're free. You're free. The judge ruled in our favor. You're going to be free. So, and I just was overcome with emotion. The whole time we was on the phone, I couldn't say nothing. I may have said thank you and a couple of things, but I was without, I literally was without words the entire time we was on the phone. Just overwhelmed and overjoyed. The judge decided that the prosecutor had improperly withheld evidence from the defense. And on top of that, he said in his judgment that Ricky Kidd was innocent. The next day, the judge signed an order saying Ricky could be released while the state decided whether to fight his decision. And that afternoon, Ricky walked out of prison in a suit, surrounded by his family, his lawyers, and his supporters. Freedom. After more than 20 years in prison, today, Ricky Kidd walked free. He was wrongly... All right, here it is, Cheesecake Factory in Kansas City. The next day, Vika and I jump on a plane to Kansas City to go meet Ricky for the first time in person. We meet again. Totally different circumstances. We find Ricky on his first full day as a free man, ordering mozzarella sticks and drinks with his family and friends. 
You know, my daughter was in her mother's womb when I got locked up. And she, she drove me here today. Another exoneree, a man named Daryl Burton, who also spent more than 20 years in prison, is at dinner too. Now he's a pastor, and he co-founded a nonprofit to help wrongfully convicted inmates get out, and once they do, to get back on their feet. If you don't mind, can I offer a blessing before we get started eating everything? Yeah, yeah. He asks to give a prayer before the meal. God, we just thank you, Lord, thank you. for what you've thank done you. and this miracle that you brought Ricky home. And we just ask you to just be with all of those, Lord, who are in prison or wrongfully sitting in those cages, Lord, just praying and waiting for a way and a, and a hope to come home just like Ricky did and just like I did. We pray these things in our Lord's name. So be it. Amen. 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 Right. Thank you. Thank you, brother. I asked Ricky what it felt like to finally walk out of that prison after so many years. Was, I was grateful on so many different levels. I was grateful to be exonerated. I was grateful to be with my family. Uh, and I, I was grateful that, that everybody was there. What's the world look like, I mean, to you? What are you seeing that we don't see because we've gotten used to it? I see trees. I see a bath um, that I had this morning that I haven't taken in 23 years. Um, I woke up and brushed my teeth with a real toothbrush this morning, a real extended toothbrush. It even had a button on it that could and I brushed my teeth this morning the longest. I didn't want to stop brushing. <laughs> so it's small things like that. Even on Ricky's first day of freedom, as he's enjoying all of these things that he's missed for so long, he can't help reflecting on all the problems with this system and how lucky he was to have found people to help him on his case. But when you're talking about being poor, you don't have access to money, therefore you don't have access to Sean O'Brien's and Cindy Dodges. When you don't have access to attorneys like that, you're gonna get a Cincinnati public defender system or a Missouri public defender system or an Illinois public defender system. It's a gimmick. You entitled to a lawyer only by show, only by paper. You entitled to representation only on paper. We also stopped by to see Sean O'Brien at his house. We found him at his kitchen table, working on a death penalty case in Wyoming. I never get to sit and just enjoy the feeling because my head's already in Wyoming on my other case. And so Sean has seen this kind of story play out before a wrongfully convicted man being freed after a long, arduous court battle. And his thoughts were already turning to the next chapter. What happened yesterday was joyous, um, but I've been through this with so many clients that I know what's coming in a week or two. And it's going to be hard. Sorry, what's coming in a week or two? When the adrenaline rush and the excitement falls down and the loss of 23 years becomes so obvious to Ricky and his family. You know, um, he'll go through a lot of, of uh, emotional problems. Um, and so we're, you know, we're, we're going to work on it. Sean was once a public defender. He says he left that system 30 years ago because he thought it was broken, and he decided to instead focus on correcting the errors produced by it, by overturning wrongful convictions. He's had some big wins over the years. He's literally saved his clients' lives, 
and he's helped create the legal precedents that have allowed more people to walk free. So we have enough exonerees just in Kansas City to do a pretty large group therapy. <laughs> you know, so. But he also knows there are far more people out there than he can ever help. Ricky is the exception. He's not the rule. What I was trying to get at was kind of how are we supposed to think about this system. Did the system succeed here? No. Um, it didn't succeed when an innocent man got convicted. And it utterly failed when it took 23 years to fix that mistake. Um, I mean, I wish I could say it was a crack in the system, but this is the system. In September, a few weeks after we met Ricky, the Jackson County prosecutor announced she was dropping all charges against him, and the attorney general said he wasn't going to fight the judge's decision either. In other words, Ricky was finally free and clear of this nightmare that began 23 years ago. Ricky now plans to travel around the country meeting with other exonerees like himself, and also talking to politicians and policymakers to try to push for change in the criminal justice system. So, Frank, after all of this time, after everything that Ricky has been through, it's not even like he's putting the whole chapter behind him and moving on and trying to forget. He's re-engaging with the same system that failed him? Yeah, Ricky, I think he's always felt that his story was representative of a larger problem. And so, yeah, he's working with the Midwest Innocence Project. He's helping set up newest innocence projects around the country. He wants to fight for change on this issue and to help to get more people out of prison who are wrongfully convicted. You spent a lot of time with him. You've talked to him a bunch since he's been released. For anyone in this situation, how is he not more angry? I mean, the short answer is I don't know. Like, personally, <laughs> I, can, I can tell you what he says, and that's that he, he says when he was in prison, he never accepted a prisoner mentality. He always knew that someday he was going to get out, and he knew that his innocence would be proven. And so he had this faith that things were going to work out, and so he refused to engage in prison life. And so that's how he explains it. But still, like for me, talking to him, I'm still like, but there's got to be some issues there, right? And he says, no, I, I don't. I, I don't feel that way. I don't feel angry. I feel like we need to make change. We need to work on these issues. We need to change the system. But he's not going to... He's not going to lose the life that he has now to the life that he lost in prison. Listen, Frank, I am very sincere about taking this negative and turning it into a positive. One thing I learned about prison and a wrongful conviction is I can do anything. Because coming from underneath a life without the possibility of parole sentence, in the state of Missouri, is very challenging and difficult and nearly impossible. But we did it as a team, as friends, as lawyers, myself, everybody who played a role, we did it. We helped flushed out the truth. Broken Justice is hosted by me, Amna Navaz, reported by Frank Carlson and produced by Vika Aronson, editing by Erica R. Hendry and Emily Carpo, engineering by Tom Satterfield, Production assistance from Chris Ford. Fact-checking by Maya Lene Bura, Amber Partita, and Harry Zahn. Taka Yasuzawa and Alex Segura composed our theme music. Additional music by Blue Dot Sessions. Rebecca O, oh, Zoe Rorick, Sahar Khan, and Liz Flock all helped with this episode. And a special thanks to Travis Dobb, Vanessa Dennis, James Williams, Julia Griffin, Dan Cooney, Wyatt Mays, 
Sydney Cameron, Nick Masella, John Yang, Adam Saroff, Brennan Butler, Stefan Rohde, Patty Morales, Dima Zane, Bill Seabrook, Leah Nagy, Kira Joaquim, Sam Lane, Jaywon Cho, Lorna Baldwin, Rachel Welford, and Maura Shannon. Thanks also to Bruce Kane, Jonathan Cherry, Dan Devaney, and Cynthia Cotton at WETAFM for all their help with the series. Sarah Just is our executive producer. And a special shout out to Baby Hendry. We thought the podcast would make its debut before you, but you beat us to the punch. Welcome to the world. Hey, let us know what you think of the show and send us your questions to podcasts at newshour.org. Tweet us at NewsHour and leave us a review in Apple Podcasts. Check out our show extras on the website. That's pbs.org slash newshour slash podcasts. 